0: Welcome to Pastor Stephen Samuel's podcast, where it's our desire that you'll be encouraged and empowered to live as a disciple-making follower of Jesus. So let me start here with just a story. I'm gonna tell you a couple of stories this morning. And uh, my heart is just to convey what I feel the Holy Spirit was putting on, giving me to share with you this morning about pursuing Him. And I know we a lot of times have those buzzwords, you know, pursuing the Lord, or I'm you know, going in the word, or studying hard, or whatever vernacular you use. But it's so easy sometimes in all our Christian phrases and buzzwords to really lose sight of what we're really doing when it comes to following Jesus. And so this morning I just wanna bring a little clarity to that thought about pursuing Jesus, what that means. And so I pulled a little excerpt from my book, and I wanna read to you about a moment in my life where that pursuit kinda took a different direction. And uh, so let me read it to you. I was a young youth pastor of a small church, full of zeal and lacking in direction. Most youth pastors, except Eugene, a fellow youth pastor, invited me to bring my teens to an event in Washington, and it was at the main wall in Washington D.C. The year was 2000, September of 2000, and we were there for an event called the Call DC. And as I was there, I was probably what in my early 20s, and my youth group, about 30 kids or so. We flew up there, and it was a You know flight out of here beaumont all the way to to washington got out went and stayed at this church we didn't have hotels or anything we stayed at a church they opened their auditorium to us to sleep around under the pews and stuff and so we get there and they're in the middle of a worship service and i was at a time in my life there where you know i I was in college i was working a a part-time job as a youth pastor i was working part-time as mcdonald's flipping burgers you know what i'm saying just a simple simple job and I was stressed out, of course, you got college, part-time job, youth pastor, all this stuff, and when you're that age, you can do that kind of stuff. You know, you can do like 50 things and a cup of coffee, and that's all it need. that's all you need, you know? And so, of course, I was single at the time, and so the big question for every young man is, you know, finding the right person, and stressed out about that, and stressed out about ministry, and all these things, plus the drama, family stuff, and all that, and after a while, how many of you have ever been there where it just starts overloading you, and the burdens start overloading you, and just one after the other after the other? And I was, remember sitting in that auditorium, and I was just brokenhearted, and I wish I had time to go into all of it, but just brokenhearted, just saying, God, am I really doing the right thing here? And I was negotiating in my mind, as, as every preacher and every minister does, and I'm sure you do as well in your career, where you think, am I doing the right thing? ever ask yourself that question? Am I doing the right thing? Am I, did I totally miss this God? Did I miss all of it? And the allurement was of course, I was youth pastoring and let me tell you, you don't make a life decision as a youth pastor. This is what i gonna do the rest of my life because it's financially, uh, you know, something that everybody pursues, right? I was barely making it from paycheck to paycheck. You say, God, I could, I could give this up. I could go get my doc, finish my degree and go in the business world and make a lot more money and you know, that kind of stuff. And so I was just wrestling with that. And as I was wrestling with this, my mind was flooded with all the concerns, all the stress, all the anxiety. And finally, I got to that place that we all get to. I give up. <laughs> I quit, God. I can't do this anymore. And just an exhaustion. And, and of course, I'd been fasting all day. I was a little tired and, and, and as, as mature as you can get as a 23-something-year-old pastor, youth pastor laid there on the ground, and then all of a sudden, I heard the, the worship song they were singing, uh, that old Hillsong's song, Lord I give you my heart, give you my soul, I live for you alone. And as they were singing that, all of a sudden, in a moment, I couldn't hear those songs anymore. And it was like, I don't know the best way to describe it, just an out of body experience, but I was in my body and I was there, and all of a sudden I look up at the ceiling that look kind of like this ceiling, little square rectangular tiles, and the ceiling began to peel back. And from behind that ceiling, this light of the Lord Jesus pierced through that ceiling. And the light was so powerful, I wish there was a way to describe it. It went through you. You didn't look at it, it went, he went through you. And every thought, every cell in your body, in my body, Fully aware, this is the Lord. And I was scared to death. Because I know we all think, when Jesus comes, I'm going to have these warm, flowery feelings. When he comes, there is a fear that hits you because he is the Lord and he sees every thought. Time stops for you. And you realize this is what it's about, him. And I remember looking into this face, so bright, so brilliant, and every fear in my life dissipated when he said, Stephen. He said, before you were born, I formed you in your mother's womb, and I called you to be a prophet to nations. And as he's speaking, he's speaking to my thoughts, in my thoughts, but so loud, ears were not necessary. And I remember just pleading saying, I can't do this. I don't even know how to do this. But his words gave all the ability I needed. And I remember looking at him and trying to hold my head up, like force my head up. It was so hard, physically almost impossible. And in a moment, the vision closed. And I laid there on the ground shaking for I don't know how long. It's like somebody took a bolt of electricity and just ran it through you. And I remember getting up from that place not with every problem fixed, in fact, all the problems were still there. But there was seated inside of me a hunger that I have to see him again. I have to see him again. And as, I'm, as, as a 23, 20-something-year-old kid, I remember going back to my corner of the place we were staying in the church. And opening my Bible and my little journal and writing and reading, and I just couldn't get enough of him. Couldn't get enough of him. Because once you see him for who he is, you realize that's all that really, really matters anymore. Right. The next day, the next day, we wake up early in the morning, 6 o'clock, and we drive out to the main mall in Washington, D.C. And as we're there, some 400,000, which I thought was about 70,000, what we were told initially, but 400,000 students gathered at the main mall, and from the, the pinnacle of, what do they call it, the Washington Monument, all the way back, packed thousands and thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of college students there, and every profound leader of the Christian church was there. From the evangelical side to the, to the Methodist side to the Baptist side, every, they were all were there. Bill Bright was there. I remember Dr. Bill Bright getting up and sharing his passion, and Lou Engle, and Benny Hinn and uh, all the guys. I mean, all the names of my generation, the leaders, you know, they were there. Worship teams and bands. And the, our call was to pray for a nation. This was in 2000. Pray for a nation. And as we're there, it started to rain about four or five o'clock. But right before it started to rain, somebody ran around and handed out copies of this little book with a green back. I think there's a picture of it. There's a little book called The God Chasers. And I remember grabbing that book, and of course I was an avid reader then, so I grabbed the book and I stuck it in my backpack, and uh, we went on with the service. And then I remember coming back to um, to the place we were staying, looking at the book. Of course it was all wet by that time and all crinkled up, but I hung on to that book and I came back home that next week or so and began a fast, probably the longest fast I've done in my life, and began to fast and pray and seek God's face and saying, God, I, I saw you and I don't want to ever run from this place of seeing you and wanting to see you again and again and again and again. And so I opened up the book, God Chasers, and I began to read about this story of a guy named Tommy Tenney. Some of you have probably heard him, he's probably been here before, I think. Tommy Tenney, and he told, Tommy Tenney is a a fifth generation Pentecostal preacher, so when we talk about preachers, this is a preacher of preachers, you know what I'm saying? And Tommy Tenney's job as an itinerant speaker is, he preaches revivals in the circle of the denomination that he's in, so he goes from revival service to revival service, and in the book you can read it, it's really good, but he talks about an event that happened that really registered in my heart because it reminded me so much of what happened the day before, before the call DC. He talks about a time, 1996, he was at Christian Tabernacle in Houston, Texas. It was a little church, and he'd gone there for a revival and just an unusual power, presence of God in that time that he was there. And the pastor who had had him on just an itineration there, I guess, coming regularly, called him at this one particular service and asked him to come back the next night, a Monday night. And so they showed up that Monday night. Well, all week they would start meeting, kinda like we've done, praying and just seeking God's face. And then there was this one Sunday morning service, 8.30 a.m. service where Tommy was asked to come. And he writes about it as the the worship began, the the musicians couldn't play because the presence of God was so strong they couldn't see through the tears they were crying to see the music to do the worship. And so they just quit. (laughs) They couldn't worship anymore. And as they were trying to function and worship, trying to, trying to move forward, the, the crowd was just hungry for the Lord, hungry for God's presence, and there was wailing and crying and weeping and repentance, and the service hadn't even started. And then, as, as we went through it, finally, it came to the point where the senior pastor looked at Tommy and said, hey, you wanna go ahead and share something, take the service? And Tommy refused, because he didn't feel like that was the direction the Lord was giving him for the service and then he writes in his book and i'll read it to you he says my friend not given to any kind of outward demonstration got up and walked to the platform he appeared visibly shaky at this point so i sensed something was about to happen that i walked and that i, I walked all the way from the front to the back of the church by the sound booth i knew god was about to do something i was so desperate to catch him that i got up and decided i wasn't going to miss anything I wasn't sure if, if something was going to happen on the platform, but I knew something was going to happen. My pastor friend stepped up to the clear pulpit in the center of the platform, opened the Bible, and quietly read the gripping passage from 2 Chronicles 7, 14. The passage, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Then he closed the Bible, gripped the edges of the pulpit with trembling hands and said, the word of the Lord to us is to stop seeking his benefits and seek him. We are not seeking his hands any longer, but we're seeking his face. He writes, in that instant, I heard what sounded like a thunderclap echo through the building and the pastor was literally picked up and thrown backwards about 10 feet, effectively separating him from the pulpit When he went backward, the pulpit fell fell forward. The beautiful flower arrangement positioned in front of it fell to the ground. By the time the pulpit hit the ground, it was already in two pieces. It had split into two pieces almost as if lightning had hit it. At that instant, the tangible terror of the presence of the Lord filled the room. Tommy goes on to say the pastor would lay immobile for two hours or more, only able to shake a finger to give sign of life the church began in utter terror to pile toward the altar, repenting for sins. He said businessmen ripping off their ties, climbing over people, people in the parking lot, driving by, would just veer into the parking lot, try to make their way out of their car, fall and collapse, and the ushers would be dragging people into the front door, because God's presence settled down on a place where people were hungry and desperate. Tommy says, it was pure pandemonium. People shoved one another out of the way. They couldn't wait for the aisles to clear. They climbed over pews, businessmen tore off their ties, and they were literally stacked on top of one another in the most horribly harmonious sound of repentance you've ever heard. There were people on their faces. There was hardly any music being played at this point. Worship was rampant and uninhibited. People were on their faces, on their feet, on their knees, but mostly in his presence. There was so much presence and power of God that people began to feel an urgent need to be baptized. And when I walked, when I watched as people walked through the doors of repentance, one after the other, and experienced the glory and the presence as God came near. And I can tell you in my life, as I read that story as a young youth pastor, something inside of me, the voice of the Spirit inside of me said, this is what you're paid for. And I began to read and read and read. And I begin to find these people in history, much like this, who said, this is what I'm made for. I want to be a person of his presence. I'm going to pursue him till I get him, no matter what people think or the cost. It's hard to merge that reality of living to experience Jesus with all the other realities of life that we want to pursue, because they all will fall as a distraction in front of us. We all know the right answers in our head, well, I know we're not supposed to live for materialistic things, I know we're not supposed to live for temporal things, and yet we're all somewhat in some way or the other end up doing that and the idea of pursue, a life of pursuing God's presence becomes somewhat for the other guy, some other person. Well, those are for the full-time ministry people. But then I look at history and I look at guys like Smith Wigglesworth, a plumber, William Seymour, Maria Woodworth Edder, Amy Semple McPherson, John G. Lake, a businessman. And I read the stories of their life where they pressed through the invisible realm and they found God and they caught him. John G. Lake, super successful businessman in Chicago, seeking God night after night in prayer, father of, I believe, nine children, felt the call and the desire to capture God, sold his whole business, gave away all his money, loaded a boat, and went to South Africa to preach the gospel. He was not a preacher, and he found God so powerfully that he changed the world with the power of what he called healing rooms. Maria Woodworth Etter, unmarried, woman preacher, despised by all the male preachers, unable to read, pursued God as a young woman, didn't have any theological training, and she pushed to capture him, and then Jesus appears in her room, and in a moment gives her the ability not only to read and write, but the full knowledge of everything written in the Bible. In a moment, she caught him. They say when Edder would step into a city toward the end of her ministry, within a mile radius of where she physically stood, everybody would be healed. Hospitals would empty out when she left the city. So much power, they didn't know what to call it. People would just fall on the ground and shake uncontrollably and demons would manifest and people would get set free from addictions and demonic oppression. And she just was a simple, little, petite, Pentecostal woman with a hair bun and a bobble. She wasn't a great order. Catherine Coleman, divorced, skinny little lady from the Wisconsin area, captured him and had such a love relationship with the Holy Spirit that she could rarely speak of the Holy Spirit without welling up with tears she captured his heart and when Coleman would stand on the stage thousands and thousands would healed instantaneously of the most crazy diseases and this wasn't just about healing and miracles it was these people captured a glimpse of who God is they captured him and their heart desire to capture him became primary in their life for all other desires fell away and we read stories as I've read as you are probably familiar with Roberts Lairdons series God's generals of all these men of God women of God throughout time even going all the way back into early medieval times early church and you find that this is not necessarily so uncommon across the span of history as it is now it's easy to find good Christian people It really is in America. It's easy to find them. Every country club has them. You can walk through Walmart. You don't have to work hard to find a Christian. You can find them. But you know what it is hard to find? People that have captured him. The God chasers whose life is to pursue him. Because we, and I'll put myself in there, are so busy pursuing so many other things that in the scope of eternity will matter little I'm not saying abandon all obligations I'm saying make this the number one obligation I have to catch him I have to catch him and not just one moment one instance one experience but experience after experience after experience I have to catch him not just in a Sunday morning service but every time I go to meet with him, I don't leave until I've heard his voice because we are called to be a people of his presence. Not we as community church, but every disciple is called to abide with him. Jesus said in John chapter 13, 14, 15, abide in me, let my words abide in you. That word abide is a coexisting relational word that means you feel God near you and he says if you abide in me my words abide in you he goes on and says I am the father we will come to you we will make our home with you and manifest ourselves to you that promise is for everyone every one of us what does it mean to pursue Jesus it's not merely living in agreement with ethical guidelines as we're so often told, following Jesus is just being a good person. Following Jesus means you're no longer satisfied with wearing the I'm saved label, and pers- but you move to pursuing encounters with Jesus. And I don't mean just an emotional roller coaster from one good service to the next. I'm saying every time you open your Bible or you get in the presence of Jesus or you're in a conversation, you're listening, you're looking, Is he here? What is he saying to me? What can I change in my life? How can I obey his voice? The whole feel good about yourself platform falls apart when you begin to find that your feelings are for him and not for yourself. To pursue him means to obey him and allow the regular realization of his nearness to alter your thoughts, behavior, Choices in your identity. People know you not because of what you can do, but because of who you know. There are some people, we all have them in our life, right? If I know wanna know what God is saying, this is the person I call, why? Because they're connected to him. Listen, that's not for just a few people. That's for you. How do we change a city? How do we change a nation? When our leaders, when our teachers, School administrators, mayors, governors, politicians, leaders are a people of his presence. Because God can govern the world if we'll just let him govern through us. That's how the change happens. People have to yield to him. Every knee has to bow to him and say, he is the Lord and I'm going to listen to him. I'm not just following a rule book called the Bible, I'm following a person named Jesus. And He is the Son of God, the one that I take my orders from. The closer you get to Him, the more of your self-focused, self-pleasing, and prideful identity you easily can throw away to just get another glimpse of Him. And I'm telling you, this is not a momentary, one-time thing, this is an everyday process. I throw away more of me because I see more of him. And the more of him I see, the less of me I want. Paul says like this, all these things that I've accomplished, and he has this huge resume of things that he's accomplished, right? Circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees. According to the law, I know all the law. He knew all the prof- prophe- prophecies. He knew scholarly wisdom. All of these things. He says, I count these things as dung, King James ver- Version, right? I don't want to offend anybody, right? Dung. For the excellency of the knowledge of him. It's not worth it. I would love to tell you, listen. Get all these credentials behind you, and then you'll find him. But I found that if you find him first, yeah. that's all you need. And I'm not discounting education. I'm not discounting learning. But the pursuit has to be, I'm going to find him. Here's what I found in my 20-something years, 30-something years now of following Jesus. Perfect people don't pursue him. Desperate people Do. When you have it all together, there's really not a lot of motivation, unction to find Jesus more. But then when you get desperate, and a lot of times that desperation is instigated by tragedies, it doesn't have to be that way. But a lot of times when your kid is sick, then you're serious about finding him. When malady hits your life and tragedy strikes, then you're serious about finding him. And it doesn't have to be that way, but I'm saying sometimes in the tension between two uncertainties, that's where your heart starts reaching for something beyond what you know and you're willing to do whatever it takes to find him. Jesus didn't come to make you the best version of yourself. He came to make you the only version of himself and I say that because it's not about finding yourself it's about you dying to your selfishness so he can show himself through you what are some of the excuses that hinder us from pursuing Jesus here's the first one God encounters are not for everyone it's only for a few select people it's not for everybody Stephen it's only for a few people and And I've heard that in many ways, people, you know, come as a, as a pastor, people come to me, well, that's your job. My job is this, but you know what? This is not a job. This is a life. God encounters are not for just a few people. You know who gets them? Hungry people, hungry people. It's people who said, I'm not going to be satisfied with good things and a happy life. I have to find Jesus, experience him, we have a saying in, the, in Chi Alpha, we say to our small group leaders, you always feed the hungry. And usually the hungry people are usually the ones that are, can't provide for themselves. And they keep coming back and keep coming back. Listen, God, in the very same way, he always feeds through the hungry. That's why he says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom." Not necessarily financially poor, but guess what? We get to this place of, "I really don't know what I'm doing, God. I really need help, and I'm willing to listen. Not that desperation in itself is the key, but desperation that leads to obedience is the key. The next excuse that we give many times about pursuing, when we don't want to pursue Jesus, "I don't need to pursue Jesus anymore because I'm happy with where I am." Listen, in an affluent culture like we have here in Southeast Texas. It's so easy to just think, I'm happy, Stephen. I get to wake up and play golf and have a good time, and I got my retirement set aside, or I got a good job set aside, and I'm just happy with life. And here's the, here's the concern, or here's the reality. You are living on a thread that is holding your reality together. At any moment, it can break. It can break. The wealth that you have, all it takes is one bad day in the stock market and it's gone, it can break. The health that you feel so strong about right now, all it takes is one little virus and it's gone. It can break, why? Because this whole world is hinged in its cohesion, holding together on this one thing, one person, Jesus. Colossians says it like this. Paul in his letter to the Colossians says it like this. He holds all things by the word of his power. It's all really about him. And so the idea that I'm happy where I'm at, you're in a delusion. You're temporarily content with a temporary hope that will all crumble in a moment. It is only by the grace of God that he's giving you time to realize it before you're forced to realize it's all about him. And I'm not saying that in a threatening way. I'm saying that in a very real way. He holds together your reality. And when you come to the place of he is worth it, he's worthy of all my attention, affection, worship, life, choices, life takes on true meaning. The next excuse, I only need a little bit of time I'm sorry, I only need a little bit of Jesus because I want to do a few things in my life first, right? Stephen, I want to get this house paid off first. I want to get this goal achieved. I want this vacation to Hawaii done. I want to, I want to get all this stuff done. And what you're really saying is, these things are going to give me something that Jesus doesn't really give me, right? I want to have these little pleasures, and then I'll get serious about pursuing Jesus. And listen, those things are not in and of themselves horrible. But here's what I've found to be true, and you know it. Those things take longer than you think. And then your 20, 30, 40 years of being a Christian but never really experienced Jesus in a long time. Your last experience with Jesus was at a youth camp as a teenager. And it cannot be so. Because if this is a relationship, that means a daily experience with the person you're in a relationship with. And if you don't feel jesus or haven't felt jesus close to you in decades you're lying to yourself if you're saying you're following jesus because you're not the belief that i can get all this stuff first done and then i can follow jesus it's a deception because what will happen is you're counting on the fact that your heart will still be hungry after you go through all that stuff and i'm telling you it won't your heart changes become calloused. The last objection, I don't know where to start. How do I start following this pursuit of Jesus? Let me tell you two stories real quick. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 22 to 30, there's a story about this good old boy named Jacob. And I like Jacob because Jacob is is about as imperfect as I am. (laughs) Jacob tricked his brother with the help of his mother, tricked his brother out of the birthright, which I don't have time to go into all that, but essentially he got the wealth of the family, right? He got the blessing that his dad Isaac gave. Isaac thought he was giving it to his brother Esau, but Jacob dressed up like his brother, right? Made him a good pot of stew and then got the blessing and then ran for his life, right? Took the inheritance with him. And after he runs, he runs to his father, he runs to his uncle Laban's house And just as Jacob tricked his brother and tricked his father to get his birthright, Jacob is then being tricked by his soon-to-be father-in-law. And he works some 14 years to try to get the girl that he loves, Rachel, right? But in the process, has to marry Rachel's sister by accident, Leah, and then gets Rachel. And then by the time he's established, he's got two wives and X amount of kids and You know, it's just this huge family and hundreds of sheep and cattle. He's got a little empire. And now he gets word from the Lord he has to go back to his homeland. And as he's going back to his homeland with this huge caravan of everything. News comes to him that his brother, who he hasn't talked to since he betrayed and stole the birthright from, is on his way to meet him with 400-something men. Slightly scary. Yes, because Jacob doesn't have an army, and it appears that Esau does. You know what happens when you get in a battle when one guy has an army and the other one doesn't? Annihilation is what happens, right? And so as Jacob is traveling toward what he believes his brother, where his brother Esau is, he's running from a father-in-law who's mistreated him, taking advantage of him, right? Running toward a brother that potentially hates him, back to a family that knows he's the trickster. It's not good on any side, Right? And as he's running into this place, Genesis chapter 32, I'm going to read the passage to you. So he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And this is usually where many people find they begin their pursuit of God. When they're left, what? alone. You know why? Because sometimes we don't realize how weak we are until we get alone. And I don't mean just the absence of people near you, but I'm speaking of in your heart, you realize there's really nobody else that can help you. You jacked your life up and you made some mistakes and people made some mistakes that jacked your life up and you now have to deal with this by yourself. You can read all the self-help books. You can listen to all the podcasts, listen to all the preachers. But you know what? It falls on your shoulders. Jacob is left alone. And what happens when Jacob left alone? This man appears. And if you have a good old King James Bible, that word man is capitalized, which tells me it's a theophany. It's Jesus. And what does Jesus do when he shows up? He kicks Jacob's tail read it. I'm not making this up. This is good stuff. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip. The man touches Jacob's hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and prevailed. Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name. And I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen the God face to face and my life has been preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. This story is not a typical Cinderella story. Jacob is alone running for his life between two dramatic events in his life. He's running from a father-in-law, running to an angry brother, and in the tension of it, he's trying to save his wife and his kids, his wives and his kids, and he sends them apart. He's pretty much a coward, you know what I'm saying? Send his wife one way, send his kids the other way, and he gets alone. And as he's there and alone, this guy shows up, and the man that shows up is Jesus. And what does Jacob do? He does what he's done his whole life. He's a fighter, and he starts fighting. It's dark. There's no street lights. There's no candles. There's nothing. A man shows up. Jacob is... Pleading for help and the one guy that shows up to help he doesn't even recognize he gets up out of, off the ground and starts wrestling the guy because that's what every guy does when you wake him up in the middle of the night and he starts wrestling and as he's wrestling him he will not let this man go and the sun is coming up which tells me they've been wrestling for some time could you picture this out in the middle of the Middle East in the desert Sun is about to come over the top about 4 a.m. And you got this weirdo wrestling with a stranger. And as they're wrestling and fighting, he says, the man says to him, let me go. It's daybreak. It's time for me to go, right? And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. So there's a sense in Jacob that this guy that he's fighting is more than just a regular guy. He says, I'm not let you go till you bless me. And so he, the man, Jesus, says to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, You will no longer be called Jacob, but you will be called Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and prevailed. I know we always read the word Israel and we think that's a nice word. It literally means you're fighting God. That's your name. You're the one who struggles with God. And I bring that story to you because Jacob's face-to-face encounter pursuing of God didn't happen in a cathedral somewhere, in a temple with a sacrifice, with all the holy whatevers all around and the orthodoxy of how to find God. He found God in the loneliness of his struggle, and he said, I'm not going to let you go until you change me. And the thing that needed to be changed was his name Jacob means heel grabber or deceiver. And he didn't want to be the deceiver anymore. He knew in his mind that the calamities on both sides of his timeline were the result of his behavior and the broken behavior of people who responded to his brokenness. We're not all so naive to think that our life is in calamity because it's all other people's fault. Let me tell you where the fault lies many a times. Right here. you broke it. We break it all the time. You know why? Because we're broken people. And we need a God who can fix our brokenness first before fixing all the other things. Because if he fixes all the other things like you could have done for Jacob, Jacob would have still got in there and broke it all up again. Our nature is selfish. And Jacob says, I'm going to fight you until you give me a different one. And what did Jesus do? Changed his name. Changed his name? He says, no longer will you be called Jacob the deceiver, but you're the one. Watch who fights with God and men and prevails. Jacob knew something that the God of his father, Isaac, and his grandfather, Abraham, that God was the one God that could fix his Jacob problem. Because it was that God that appeared to him when he started the journey toward his brother, father, father-in-law Laban's house and told him, when you come back to this place, I'm going to bless you. Jacob knew. When I start the journey back to him, I'm going to find him. And then I think in his Jacob personality, I'm going to catch him and I'm not letting him go. Just one more story as I'll wrap this up here. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 30, chapter 32 and 33, there's another fighter, a guy that we know, Moses. I know we've all watched the 10 commandments movie or the prince of egypt movie and and as much as i appreciate the movies the the theology or the biblical accuracy of it is sometimes a little bit off you know as you would imagine it would be but moses was a fighter right taken out of the cradle by pharaoh's uh, daughter raised in the house of the egyptians by his sister miriam he was fatherless growing up he knew pharaoh wasn't his dad he knew Pharaoh's daughter wasn't his mom. I mean, Hebrews look distinctly different than Egyptians. So it wasn't no anomaly that he was different. So he raised somewhat in an orphan lifestyle. And then as he grows and realizing who he was, according to the book of Hebrews, tells us that he saw the oppression of his people. Right? He saw the, over, the taskmasters whipping and beating the Jews as slaves. And something inside of him, like every one of us, when we see injustice, wants to do something. So he does what every other guy does, go and kill the bad guy, right? That's, that's the way it happens. And of course, that gets him in a load of trouble. And then what starts appearing in Moses' life is he has a little bit of an anger problem, right? And so God decides, we're going to work that out of you, buddy. In 40 years on the backside of a desert, 40 years. So when Je- Moses runs from Pharaoh, he's roughly 40 years old. Tack another 40 years on it, he's about 85 years old. That's how long it takes him to deal with his anger problem. The Lord is patient and kind. 80-something years old, Moses is walking in the desert with a herd of sheep somewhere, and in the distance he see a bush burning. Something about it, guys. Fire just attracts us to it, Right? Got to go see what's burning. <laughs> he looks aside and he sees the bush burning but not consumed. And he walks up. And you know this story. In the, from, from the midst of the fire, the angel of the Lord speaks to says, says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is 430 years from the last time God appears to Jacob. And he says, and I have seen the oppression of my people in Israel. My oppression of my people, Israel. And I'm sending you to go deliver them. And Moses, argumentative Moses, Lord, wait a minute. You don't know what you're doing. I don't know how to talk. I've got a little stutter problem. I'm a little bit of coward. I don't like confrontation. Uh, How about you pick somebody else? And they go back and forth and back and forth. And God gets a little angry with Moses, right? I wonder how Moses wrote that in the book of Exodus because he wrote it, right? tried to make himself look a little better than probably what it was. God gets angry with Moses, and then the Lord finally says, you're going, and I'm going to send your brother, right? We know this story. Moses shows up, right? Does the nine plagues. And, of course, what you don't see in the the text is Moses is alone. His wife and kids do not go with him to Egypt. They didn't understand the circumcision. They didn't understand the blood covenant. That the israelis had with the lord and so he alone or I say he with his brother aaron go into pharaoh's court and for nine months contend with pharaoh struggling to deliver the people as the lord gives him direction and after all the plagues hit egypt moses then leads the children of israel out and we think that's the end of the story it's just the beginning right Contention, strife in the camp. People wanting to overthrow Moses, right? Finally, he gets them to Mount Sinai where God told him to bring them. He goes up to the top of the mountain, and the Lord appears to him, right? Comes down on the mountain. We're not talking a little glimpse of God. We're talking all of God comes down on this mountain. And so much so that if anyone touches the mountain, they're told that they're going to get killed, right? Right? The power of God comes down, lightning flashing, a dark cloud covers the mountain. And Moses is up in this mountain, and God with his finger reaches into the side of the mountain and cuts out two tablets of stone and writes on them the charter for the children of Israel to become a nation. And he hands it to Moses, the guy that's still trying to work on his anger problem. And he says, get off of this mountain, God says to him. The people that you brought up here, they've turned on me. Get out of here. And Moses goes down and he sees the golden calf, as we all know, right? And as they're worshiping, the people are frolicking with with their sensuality and their vulgarity in front of this golden calf, worshiping. Moses gets so mad, he takes the two pieces of stone that God himself wrote on and throws it at the cow, breaking the idol in half and the commandments in half. And then he grinds the whole thing to powder, dumps it in the river, makes everybody drink it. I mean, this guy had a little bit of an anger problem. (laughs) Right? And then he says, draws the line in the sand. This is where we get the statement. Draws the line in the sand and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come over here. And if you're not, you stay over there. And the Levites all come to Moses. And then he puts the sword on all the Levites. And they go out and they slaughter everybody on the other side of the line. Should have picked the right side. 3,000 Jews killed that day and with the tension of this unfolding of people who are so stuck in idolatry they don't want to worship the God that brought them through the Red Sea Moses climbs up the mountain and God is angry I know some of you think God can't get angry you need to go back and read Exodus God is angry and he says I'm just gonna get rid of these people Moses and I'm gonna make a people out of you and Moses between the two God and a people says Lord For your name's sake, do not do this. And then God says, I'll just send an angel with you because my anger, I like the way King James says, has waxed hot against this people. They are a stiff-necked people. That's our word. We call that hard-headed people, right? And then Moses says something to the Lord. He says, I know we are a hard-headed people because what's going on in his mind? I'm a hard-headed guy too. If God doesn't cut these guys any slack, guess who's next on the chopping block? Moses. And then he says to the Lord, go with us. And as the Lord resolves to bless Israel and to lead them back to the promised land, or lead them again to the promised land, then the God of Israel begins to speak with Moses. And Moses says to him, show me your face. Tell me who you are. Because if I can see you and experience you, I can deal with all this and much more. But you've got to show me. Grace, if you'll help me. You've got to show me your face. And the Lord makes a deal with Moses. It's a great story. You should read it. Exodus 33, 32 to 33. He says, if I show you my face, you'll die. But I'll tell you what I'll do. Listen to me. God says, I'll tell you what I'll do. Come up to this mountain, and I'll put you in the cut in the rock. And I'll put my hand over your face, and I'll walk past you. And when I remove my hand, you'll see my backside. Tommy Tenney speaks of this in his book, The God Chasers. And Moses, hidden in the rock, the hand of God comes over him. He can't see for a moment. God walks, walks past him. Moves his hand and he can see God's where he's been. And he writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form. And void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And everything that God had done in a moment unfolds to Moses of the creation account. Just seeing where God was. The backside. But then Moses pleads even more, show me your face. Because if I catch you, that's all I need. And over and over, Moses would climb back up another mountain and another mountain and another mountain to catch him. He would go to the tabernacle where the cloud of God would come down. And it said everybody would run from the cloud, but Moses would go into the darkness to catch him again. And the reason he would go in, the reason he would go in over and over is because there was this unique, powerful thing happening. He was being changed when he saw the Lord. The old Moses was dying, the new Moses was coming out. So much so when he comes off the mountain, they said, Moses, put something over your face because you're glowing. The nature of God's forceful light is now coming out of your face your skin that's been the plan all along that the more you see him the more you become like him John in his letter to the first at first John he says when we see him as he is we will become like him and everyone that has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure when we see him like he is And as Moses is going, getting out, and he's seeing God face to face, he's being changed. Jacob knew the secret. If I can see him, if I can get his name, if I can get his identity, then it's going to change me. How changed did Moses, how changed was Moses when he died on, on top of a mountain right outside the promised land? The Bible says that the Archangel Michael comes down to take his body because it's such a rare thing for a human body to be so vigorous and full of life at such an old 120 something years. And the devil fights the Archangel Michael for the body of Moses. He was so changed. And I say that to us not to put just a high and lofty goal up there for us, but to give us an underlying truth that we can all be God chasers and be changed in our heart, in our attitude, in our personality. But we have to experience him. It doesn't just come by gritting your teeth and self-help books and deciding I'm going to be a better person. It comes from, I got to see you, Jesus. And whatever it takes to see you, I'm going to do it. I'm going to adjust my life, my schedule, my priorities, everything to get hours to get in your presence. Because when I get in your presence, that's when I'm changed. Today, just listen. Today, you might be between two struggles. You might have stuff in your past, stuff in your future and you're alone, and as much as you would think this is a bad thing, it's the greatest thing in your life to put you to the place of saying, I need to catch him. I need to catch him. You're probably wrestling with, like me and everyone else, there's family struggles, financial struggles, maybe it's the weight of a national crisis, all the junk that we see around us. You're being pulled. two different. Realities or many different realities, all tension all around. And we think, of, let me get out there and fix all this stuff, and then I'll have time to spend with the Lord. But it works the other way. You get in his presence. You pursue him. And you listen to the voice of his spirit inside of you that says, make time for me. And let me speak to you. And when he speaks to you, you begin to obey. And in that obeying, you are changed. You're changed. I would say the call of the Holy Spirit to you this morning, it's an invitation. Will you chase me? Will you chase me? Will you pursue me? I know in our mind, everyone says, oh yeah, I'm I'm going to go after the Lord. But nothing really changes in our schedule. Nothing really changes in our priorities. So we're just maybe not telling ourselves the truth but this morning as we wrap up here's what I'm asking you this week as you leave this place and you hear the echo of the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you he gives this invitation I wouldn't say often but he's giving it to us as a church to pursue him and if we'll seize the opportunity and say yes Lord I'll change my schedule change my priorities i'm not going to wait till just crisis pushes me into your presence i'm going to start going after you i'm going to start going after you there's only one man that i can find in the scriptures who pursued god and there wasn't a crisis it was this little guy named david and god looked at him and said this is a man after my own heart everyone else pursued him out of crisis and david pursued him out of peace said, I need to build a house for the Lord so I can abide with him. And the Lord looked at him and said, this is a man after my heart. And out of him will come Messiah. We can be a David. You can be a Jacob. You can be a Moses. Regardless, the end of our journey is catching him. The process of our journey is catching him. And that's my challenge to you this morning. What can you do to catch him? Where do you start? Start with where your problem is. God, I don't know how to fix this. I need to get with you and hear your voice. Thank you for listening to Stephen's podcast. To connect with us or to order his book, A Reason for Hope, visit stephensamuel.org. You can also find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, you guessed it, Stephen Samuel. Thanks for listening. Thank you.